listeners, welcome back to the Hossman FC podcast. I'm Nicola Volpi and joining me, having been granted the keys to the city of Valencia, it's Roy Cycli. Yes, the keys and I'll never go back. To Vibe City. Yes, exactly. Take the keys and throw them away because Valencia Club de Football is nowhere near the top anymore. We're going to continue on, listeners, with our discussion from last week around Spanish cult teams. And I'm going to take you guys this week to somewhere a bit different from Vibe City, where Roy took us last week. Um, When people think about Spain, they think about the sun, they think about the nice beaches that you can lounge on, all that good food. There's good food everywhere in Spain, even in this place, but I'll tell you what there isn't. And that's good weather because in the the far northwest corner of Spain, in Galicia, where the Spanish sounds almost more Portuguese than Spanish, the weather is quite Celtic. In fact, that's where a lot of immigration came from way back in the day. Um, Very different part of Spain and within that region. The big rival of Celta de Vigo, who we're not going to talk about Celta de Vigo, is Deportivo. Wait, wait, wait. Real quick. Who are, who's uh, managing Celta de Vigo right now? Oh, yes. And that's the wonderful segue. It is our man, Rafa Benitez, one of the patron saints of this podcast. Roy's, big Rafa. Roy's third favorite manager of all time. Who would be my second? Uh, Mourinho. I'll smack you. And your first is Unai Emery, the current manager uh, of Aston Villa. Severus Snape. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to go to talk about Deportivo La Coruña, who from around 1990, or let's say around the mid-90s, up until 04-05, had one of the most remarkable runs for such a small market team anywhere uh, in Europe. We're going to go through that. Everything, though, for me, Roy, starts towards the end. That's where I'm going to start this with a bit of a uh, personal anecdote. Yeah, it sounds a little dark. S- starts towards the end. Okay. <laughs> it is let's, quite let's, dark. Let's hear it. So it's the 2003-2004 Champions League season. Mm. Quarterfinals. AC Milan, current reigning champions of Europe and on their uh-huh. way to winning an Italian league title under what manager, Roy? I don't know. You know him. The one and only. He's still around. And it's not Benitez. No, don't. <laughs> don't tell me it was Big Carlo. It's Carlo Ancelotti before he was even big. You know, when he could still smoke cigarettes on the sidelines, actually. Well, as he said, he's still a very handsome guy. Incredibly, for that age? I would say so, no? Mid-60s? Yeah. And he likes his food. And, you know, he doesn't shy away from it. Why, why, shouldn't, why should he? Why should he? Think of Carlo's... Just a, a sidebar before getting into the actual topic. Carlo's food career, from having played in Roma and Milano to having coached in Milano, Napoli, London, Paris, Madrid. I mean, Liverpool. Well, he was in Everton. London for a while, so <laughs> he, he was also- maybe maybe that was uh, <laughs> your your level setting your expectations before hopping right back into it. Exactly, back with the ham in Spain now. What you would love, but anyways, a great Milan team. I mean, should we just throw out a few names? We have Maldini, Nesta, Pirlo, Gattuso, Sedor, Shevchenko, Tomasson, Inzaghi. Never heard of any of these Never guys. Never heard of any of them. And Nelson Dida in goal, your personal favorite. The I love Dida. 
Dita the man until he got hit by uh, by a firework from the Interfans, and then uh, something was lost. Uh, poor Nelson Dita. Anyways, first leg, San Siro, 4-1, AC Milan. Ooh. Wonderful free kick from 30 meters from Andrea Pirlo, who the new generation Roy forgets. Played at Milan for 10 years and won two Champions Leagues with them. They, do they forget? Or do they do? Are you saying they think of the Juve days? Exactly. Exactly. Maybe it's the way that AC Milan let him go. Also, but they don't even know about that, right? They only know about this bearded hipster dude in the in the Juve midfield, right? Today is Sandro Tonali. Unbelievable. You stop that right now. And uh, second leg comes around. Milan flying high in the league. Shows up. Same squad in A Coruña. It's just kind of dense air, a mix of fog and rain as you have in this area of Galicia. Almost poetic. And by halftime, Deportivo Coruña is up 3-0. Oh? And then they make it 4-0 and they advance 5-4 on aggregate. They go to the semifinals of Champions League. And that was... I was about 10 years old and I think it was one of the first times where the tribalism left me all of a sudden and I was like, wow, respect. That team no, is that super was it? cool. That was the one. It wasn't Liverpool after. It was that one that shaped me. Wow. Yeah. It, I, that's a shocker there. And I fell in love with that team. And so today's uh, today's episode is very dear to my heart. But 2004, that was very much, you know, peak Deportivo La Coruña in the folklore. They were calling them, at this point, they had gone from being called Super Depor to being called Euro Depor because of their runs in Europe. But it all starts, Roy, at the beginning of the 90s. At the time, Deportivo is a team that basically yo-yos between the second and third divisions of Spain. Okay. Nothing, nothing special. In a region with a very strong local identity, though. So as we've discussed with Spain, that's that's a big aspect of it. New ownership comes in, a local ownership who brings some change. They focus very much on reestablishing the relationship with the local fans, on championing that that local identity, but also on development and scouting. At a time when, you know, we weren't where we are with all the metrics in the game today, etc., if you could build a scouting network that was global, also in places like South America at the time, it could be a huge leg up. Definitely. And so they start to build this. Out of this, uh, from from their community, actually comes what I believe is one of the best number 10s of that era in Spain, but that was never heralded enough, and that is Fran. Yeah. I um, I, I wasn't too familiar with his game. We did a, I did a lot of research, including several extensive YouTube videos mm-hmm. and magical left foot. Magical. He's he's the the prototypical, you know, kind of wing 10 that has the freedom to do whatever he wants, a bit short, uh, left-footed, Wait, I, this is where technical. I push, this is where I push back on you. Yeah. On the bit short. He was almost six foot. Was he? 5'10". And then on some of the websites, they say he's 5'11". It must have been the baggy shirts they wore then. I don't know, because it, he I, doesn't it, strike me as me, six it's foot. The, it's the... F- the footwork looks like a small ah, David yeah. Silva 
today equivalent where his yeah. feet move so fast and he's very he's not like very boxy so right. again with the baggy shirt but i was surprised so i'm watching these these videos i had the same exact i was like wow look at this you know small player and then you see that so one of my favorite players you know mezzarozo was six foot you never would have thought looking at true. that guy that true he was six foot but incredible left foot and then also did not have and maybe he did in early days a ton of pace which i always respect those kind of players that mm. they're just baseline skill first touch and footballing brain takes them to the next level without having the let's say the body for it right you were the fron of the right wing back in your playing days i never stepped foot on the wing <laughs> Oh, man. And uh, yeah, so interesting with Fran, though, who ends up having a career there, right? I mean, we're talking, you know, basically... Uh, five, a career? Five, yeah. Over 550 yeah. games? <laughs> exactly. He's there for the long run, a one-club Have man. you played 550 matches in real life growing up? Uh, I, I always I, play this I, game with my, like, I, internally. I don't, think, I, I don't think I've done 550 of anything in my life, to be honest. I That's just games, not even including... And that's just league. Yeah. Yeah. And, total in Spanish division his career was over 700 matches I would take say Fran in a way very much the Francesco Totti equivalent for Deportivo La Coruña in this period doesn't get the recognition though he in a period where Spain is not world beaters yet is chronic underachievers and from that generation I can't think of too many others that could play that position he only gets 16 appearances over his career with the national team. Well, why do you think that is? Well, when you look at the midfield they were using in those years with Spain, they went more muscles, it seemed. You had Luis Enrique, Pep Guardiola, the beast and the uncle of Rafael Nadal, Miguel Angel Nadal. And uh, it. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you very simply why he wasn't there. And this is... Just my intuition, no actual facts based behind it. We love that. He was not from Barca or Real Madrid. Mm. All the players you're mentioning there. We've seen it with the early 2000s, you know, the 2010s. The players that start for the Spanish team and get called up, they're Barca or Real Madrid. Yeah. Because that's the caliber player. This guy was in the northwest of Spain. So yeah. 16 caps it's nothing it's a couple qualifying campaigns right like one and a half maybe and i think it's a it's a very astute point and it's a bit the probably this bias of if he's still up in galicia and hasn't made the big move there must be a reason for it we're not bringing him in yeah which is a shame and i think you see it today and you know when the the post spanish champs you know, they had to retool and there's not, there wasn't as many Barca players, some Real Madrid players, but then you're bringing the, you know, Orsabal from mm. Sociedad, Danny Olmo, who's at Leipzig. And there was a lot of pushback on, oh, this Spanish team is, you know, you go to a Euro, you go to a World Cup, no one's favoring the Spaniards anymore. Just taking the fact that they still had some really technical players. It's just kind of, oh, we don't have these name players. Right. Um, you know, they're not going to be good if we, if they're looking at players, you know, 
like I just mentioned, from other clubs. Yeah. It's a very fair point. And they do compliment Fran, though, in Deportivo. They bring on Bebeto from Brazil, who is a 1994 World Cup hero when they won. And they bring on a guy who then also stays for the whole ride with uh, with Fran, defensive midfielder, one of these glue players from Brazil, Mauro Silva, a bit like your friend uh, from later years, Gilberto Silva, in terms of playing style, and really the guy that makes it work, the cog in the machine, if you will. Uh, you're you're grimacing here. What do you have to say? You're smirking. No. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'm not smirking. So Mauro Silva. Um, Basically, what they do at the time is to recruit these Brazilians, legend has it, is they pitch them a Coruña as the Rio de Janeiro of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> they forget to mention the incessant rain, precipitation, uh, and general humidity, and the very different type of vibes from when you go further south in Spain. Um, so they, they lure them in with this promise, and then they end up staying for at least a couple of years because they start to really build a club around this. 1994, it comes down to the last day of the season. After a few years of this new ownership, Deportivo La Coruña flying high, all they need to do on the last day of the season to clinch the title is oh. beat a Valencia team at home who has nothing to play for. On a pitch... That's deadly. Exactly. On a pitch across the country, in the Camp Nou, in Barcelona, Barca, everything is out of their hands. The dream team of Barcelona, right? With the previously mentioned Guardiolas, Nadal, Romarios, etc. All they have to do... Well, actually, it's totally out of their hands. They have to win and hope that Deportivo La Coruña chokes. So the matches go on and on and on and on. Barca is winning theirs. And uh, the Barca match is basically finishing a bit early. And back in A Coruña, Deportivo still 0-0. They get a penalty in the last minute of the match. No. And their main penalty kick taker at the time is uh, he's injured. And so up steps, uh, you know, randomly one of one of their defenders at the time to take this penalty kick. Deportivo La Coruña has never won any major title at this point. 1994, last day of the season. All he needs to do is score a penalty. The Valencia keeper saves it. Oh, not even a miss. Not he even a miss. Um, a save on the last action of the match. News reaches the Camp Nou. They're, of course, celebrating a title at the Camp Nou at this point. But at the same time, something is happening. The Valencia players, who had nothing to play for, are celebrating as if they won something. Of course. Now, what ends up coming to light years later is that there was a deal. An incentive scheme between Barca ownership and the Valencia players, which consisted of roadside meetings in the middle of the highway in Spain with, you know, allegedly bags of cash to incentivize the Valencia players to play to the death on the last game of the season. And they got their reward. Oh, I love the integrity of Barcelona. <laughs> exactly. Throughout the years. It never ends, right? And this then starts to spark a rivalry because the next year, 1995, Copa del Rey final, is Deportivo against Valencia. 
And that is where this winning cycle, if you will, of Deportivo Stars, they win their first ever major title. They win a Copa del Rey, which is massive. And that's where you could say, okay, this could be that flash in the pan type of team. They've gotten their their trophy as we've seen in the past years, you know, with the Real Sociedades and Betises winning a Copa del Rey every 40 years or so. But no, what ends up happening is they keep believing, they keep going, they keep being near the top of La Liga. And in 1996, after just one season of brilliance at Palmeiras in Brazil, malnourished from the favelas with high cheekbones, bow-legged, Roy, where are you going with where are you going with this player? Where where am I going with this player? I'll tell you where I'm going with this player. Rivaldo Vitor Ooh. Borba Ferreira arrives in A Coruña, arrives to the Rio de Janeiro of Spain, and has malnourished. No, no, like legitimately, the guy was malnourished. It's part of the it's part of the lore of his story. <laughs> part of the vibe, part of his vibe and his lore. The the guy grew up like really when we say dirt poor, dirt poor. Like he was really the type of player for which football was the way out, the way to something, to anything. And Rivaldo goes on to have to have a brilliant season uh at at Deportivo, but just one season because then what happens is Barca, in the meantime, after just one season, sells Ronaldo to Inter, and they need to replace Ronaldo. So they bring in Rivaldo, who then also goes on to win his own Ballon d'Or two years later. And I think I'd like to talk a bit about Rivaldo, because when we look like at that 2002 World Cup squad for Brazil, and we talk about Ronaldo, we talk about a younger Ronaldinho who three years later would also win the Ballon d'Or. We even talk about a cacao on the bench. Even about your man, Gilberto Silva. But Rivaldo scored in almost every game. I want to talk about that World Cup or look at that lineup of the names for everybody to... It's too much. We'll we'll continue, but in the meantime, I'm going to search them uh, just to, to give a little taste. But... Rivaldo going to Deportivo a Coruña at that stage would be analogous today to Kylian Mbappé going to Saudi Arabia. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, Let's say Kylian Mbappé going to Espanyol or something like that. No, that that in- Okay, they were already on the upswing, but you don't have... I think, actually, the point is you don't have these type of destinations anymore without the what money. About some, like, what about an Mbappe to today, Brighton? Yeah, actually, I like okay. that. Same colors as well. A coastal town. I like that. Mbappe to Brighton. Think of that. Think of how absurd that is to get that for one year. That's what happened with Rivaldo to Deportivo Coruña. In fact, then his next clubs are Barcelona and AC Milan. He's in that Milan squad on the bench that we'll get to it, ends up going back to a Coruña and, and getting crushed a few years later. So they only have him for one season. And, you know, then in steps, Roy, there is no Spanish success story, is there, without a Basque manager. Of course, of course. Basque, like you, Javier Irueta steps in to coach the team and they make a run, the 1999-2000 season, 
They finish it with 21 wins, six draws, and 11 losses. 11 losses, Roy. Now we count teams out of out of title races after they lose one. But they win La Liga for the first and only time in their history with 69 points. Wow. And you remember what type of Real Madrid team was there? What type of Barca team was there also with the Dutch guys? Valencia. God Valencia, as we, as we now know. And that is the crowning of Superdepo. A title to the provinces of Spain. As far and as different, basically, as you can get from the power of Madrid or the identity of the Camp Nou in Barcelona, there is a title in Galicia. Something we will never repeat see again. That, repeat that... Um... The wins again. How many wins did they get in this season? So they got 69 total points. Yes. They drew six. 21 wins. And 11 losses. 11 losses. And they take the title. So one thing I love... 33 points left on the table to losses. One thing I loved about that, can you guess how many goals they scored in La Liga that season to win a title? Well, I know it because I have it right here, but it is only 66. That's insane. Throughout the whole season. You you have teams that easily get 90 now to win leagues. Pep, yeah. For example, Pep thinks a failure of a season is not scoring 100 goals in the league. 66 goals they score, and they concede 44. 22 goal difference. So with that... They they start this cycle where that now they've gotten you know even more respect even more cred they're qualifying for the Champions League and one moment like some of the heroes of that season Roy Mackay scores twenty six of those goals so essentially a third of all actually like he everything was going through him assist or goals in terms of yeah. goal contributions a little over a third of what they produced to win the league came from a 24-year-old. And and what a 24-year-old. Roy Mackay goes, scores all the time at Deportivo, Dutchman. He then ends up going to Bayern Munich and being for three to four years there one of the most dominant strikers in Europe. Um, I always think of him as the, the Robin Van Persie before Robin Van Persie, basically. Both fine old guys, too. I mean, it's same same trajectory in terms of the final season at Depor. He had, I think, 29 goals in the league and then goes to Bayern right after. Same thing with Van Persie. Last year with Arsenal, 30 goals in the league. Right. Player of the year and goes to, what's that club? Uh, small club. He leaves too. <laughs> he goes to Sir Alex. Minor detail though, Roy Mackay managed to win a title with Deportivo Coruña, whereas Robin Van Persie didn't do it with Arsenal, did he? Come on. Okay, so it was too easy. It was too easy. (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah, Roy Mackay, they also have at the time, I don't know if you remember him, a Portuguese striker who ends up at PSG before it was called Pauleta. Pauleta Uh, was, you know, the before... He wasn't a starter, though, was he? No, Mackay was was the man. I was the guy, and and they started heralding a 4-2-3-1. Copying yeah. a little bit of the the Rafa Benitez trend. Yeah. And that's when we, we talk about Rafa being like him or not, one of the most influential managers of the century. Big Rafa. 
it doesn't and end there. One thing I want to add there. Yeah. In that season, the title winning season, they move Fran out to the left mm-hmm. of the front three. So he's not through the center anymore. Which is the opposite evolution you would think as a player is starting to age that you actually move him out to the wing, especially a player who doesn't necessarily have the pace. Have, have the pace. And not only that, you move him out to the, so he's not, he has to beat somebody down the line. He exactly. can't cut in and, and deliver a pass or a run. So interesting there. Interesting, but boy, does he do it. And then two seasons later, they're not done. They're not done, Roy. They make it to another Copa del Rey final in 2002. And this is a very interesting one because the Bernabeu is hosting the Copa del Rey final that year. Real Madrid is in it against Deportivo Coruña. And it is the centenary celebration of Real Madrid. And I don't Ooh. mean that season is the centenary celebration. I mean, they've chosen that match and that game to celebrate their centenary. Well, that pre-match speech for <laughs> the manager at Deport says itself, right? Too easy, right? The hubris of Florentino Perez, who had everything organized for afterwards, like oh, three yeah. hours of celebrations for a two-hour match, and... Legend has it, during the warm-up, some of the, the Brazilian guys from the Galacticos, including Roberto Carlos, are going up to Mauro Silva and the other Brazilians on Depor and telling them, hey, you know, everything's lined up for afterwards. Like, you can join us at the after party, at this club, this and that. El Presidente has organized everything. It's on us. So they're really, they're taking this for granted. The Bernabeu is in tip-top shape, not under any renovation in that moment. It's the centenary of the power, Roy. Who is Deportivo La Coruña to show up and poop on the party? And sure enough, Deportivo Coruña in the Bernabeu wins 2-1 to one and wins their second Copa del Rey. Oh man, that... That's cult. That would have been absolutely electric. That's absolutely cult. They have... The, the few of their fans that, that managed to, to get some scalp tickets are there and they're just, they're having the time of their lives. And Real has to cancel basically all their celebrations, all the newly printed shirts and everything. The King's Cup, Roy, the Copa del Rey, which belongs to Real Madrid in their centenary, will forever be remembered as the one that Deportivo La Coruña stole. That's incredible. It's, That's it, incredible. It's really if amazing. If, if you're playing for it, Deport and they have a, a Galactico coming to you before the match telling you to come and party. I don't know if I would make it 90 minutes on the on the field. I would just be seeing red and any time I would have <laughs> to tackle somebody, I would just go in hard as I could. Yeah, and that's the thing. This story has everything, right? Sticking it to the man, the plucky underdog. But now we're in 2002. Like, they've kept this going. It's been a cycle consistently over a decade and now there's only one thing missing and it is the big ears it is the run in europe the crowning aspect also like when we discuss with valencia of any team to be defined cult it seems there needs to be some run in europe two copa de reyes one one la liga title one and they start to make that run in europe as mentioned they knock AC Milan out of the quarterfinals of Champions League. Peak Carlo Ancelotti, AC Milan, Marad, even Kaká is already there. Ooh. And they go to the semifinal, Roy. In, 
I get almost angry thinking of this year of Champions League because it is such a joke. Who do they play in the semi-final? So Monaco and Chelsea are in one. And then in this one, it is Deportivo A Coruña against... Oh, no. Jo it's Porto. It's oh, Jose no. Mourinho's Porto. Porto. First leg, 0-0. Zero, zero. And then they... I've got to say, I didn't watch that game, obviously, but that must have been the most boring match to ever surface if Mourinho is coaching that Porto team and it's 0-0. Zero, zero. It's 0-0, zero, zero, the first match. And then second leg, Porto pips them 1-0. Goes to the final of Champions League where they thrash Didier Deschamps Monaco 3-0 and Jose Mourinho is created. Ooh. That's, that's rough. That's how close they were. I would say of those four teams left, Chelsea wasn't the Chelsea you think of. It wasn't Mourinho Chelsea yet. Monaco, come on. Deportivo La Coruña on the good day where they beat that Porto team in the semifinal could have lifted the big ears. And that is also part of the aspect of these cult teams, like with Valencia, being so close, yet so far away from immortality. And what year was this? So that was 2004. Um, and that team they had Diego Tristan Juan Carlos Valeron a bunch of these super cool players Fran still Mauro Silva still so I want to one yeah. thing that you mentioned we didn't mention or we forgot to touch on is when they win in 99-2000 uh -huh. they follow up the next two years with second place second place 2002-2003 third place and 2004 season, third place again. So they were trying to fight that battle on two fronts and then getting runners up after they win. And again, the time where you have Valencia right. hitting their, their same peak as well as the Barca team. There's um, four teams in Spain in that era. Four teams that yeah. could contend and they managed to, to be up there. You know, it ends up being uh, 04 Detroit Pistons instead of Popovich's Spurs. And the difference was those fine margins. Excuse the NBA reference, but that's what it ends up being. Deportivo La Coruña 2000 is the 04 Detroit Pistons, especially based on the, the lack of offensive uh, firepower. So then things, you know, Irueta leaves at the end of 2005. In fact, I think he might even have retired. And things start to go back kind of to mediocrity. And it's mediocrity for a few years until they start to get themselves caught up in relegation battles. They end at one point, Clarence Sedorovic coaching them for the few matches at the end of the season. Your man, Fabrizio Colocini, travels through throughout the years with his, his, uh, his golden locks, as well as another uh, one with brown locks, Andreas Guardado from Mexico. Oh. Yeah, they, they're the, there. The immortal there. Yeah, this he's guy's still playing. Still playing. Yeah. He might be at Betis right now. I think he's definitely at Betis. He won that Copa del Rey with them. So they travel through just utter mediocrity, no more Europe. Next thing you know, again, Kyron Sadov coaching them for a few games at the end of the season. They end up getting relegated to La Liga 2. And now... In 2011-12. Right. They yo-yo. Oh, they come right back yeah, exactly. first. Yeah. They yo-yo a couple times. 
but then it ends up being double relegation. And today, Roy, they find themselves plying their trade in the third division of Spanish football, not even contending for promotion, and playing against Barca's B team. The fall from grace. If we thought Valencia was a fall from grace, apart from their financial management with the stadium, these guys are so far from where we saw yeah, them earlier. And, and looking, you see that at the peak in 99, 2000, they were averaging 34,000 fans mm-hmm. for home games. And after they went to the, the second division, they stopped recording attendance, but they were getting down to 9,000. And it hurts them because Celta de Vigo has basically stayed in La Liga quite consistently throughout that period where they've struggled. Well, not this season. They're not going to. With Rafa. What they have on them, though, is this cult run. And very, very nostalgic, this one. Like your Valencia last week, I think, to, to even a greater extent, I don't think we can possibly get this kind of story with that type of longevity. 15 years nowadays. Even a Leicester, look at them yeah. now. They're in the championship five years after winning a title. Yeah, well, that one also had some financial financial issues that get you right. there, but it's the same story in a, in a sense. The owner of Super Depot was, at the time, I think, one of the wealthiest men in the world. And who knows? I, I think he ends up selling the, the club to a bank and his later days but yeah you you have the fifth richest man in the world running your club you don't have to sell to you know other other bigger names and you can make these runs and really invest in what you're trying to build for the long term but eventually it might come down to something as as simple as the owner loses interest in in the sport it's no longer a a hobby but a business decision so and you can maybe see that as they, they're they not able to retool scouting changes a little bit. The times are changing. So it's a, it's a sad story. And also, like you started, how you started this saying you went from tribalism to respect mm-hmm. for watching that match. I keep on going back to this. Imagine the thousands of people watching that match and becoming a fan during that time and having to stick with their team, they turn into the tribalism. Now, that would be grim, rough. It's grim. And like you said, I mean, there is always the chance because that owner that you're talking about, fifth richest person in the world, Amancio Ortega, the owner of Inditex, which owns Zara and all the fast fashion, there is always the chance being locals that maybe his heirs take the club back one day. But that is... Like the fact that we need to have that conversation tells you everything you need to know about football nowadays that you just need to beg for a rich owner to bail you out. Yeah. And not only that, you're going to have, it's not always as easy as it, you know, on paper should be just throwing a lot of money at something. You have to have a plan, a long-term, a long-term project. And I don't know, unless you're a fan of the sport if you stick around long enough to see that unfold so you can make a return. Yeah, it's really... uh, I mean, I'm not crying now, uh, live on the podcast, but something something touches me about Depor's story. Um, Because, you know, the Valencia one, great story, great cult team, right? And I love covering that and their players and so iconic. But I also struggle to feel 
sorry for them with the self-sabotage that there was with that management and the, and the stadium, etc. right? Like, and they are still Valencia. They are still there, right? They're not in the third division now. Uh, but yeah, that's... Now in Spain, what do we have? We have Atletico stealing a title every 10 years with El Cholo. And other than that, it's a two-horse race and probably it will always be. Yeah. Unless something crazy happens. Unless, unless the Saudis come that's, in. That's a project in of itself, is right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's we've covered Valencia. We've covered Deportivo La Coruña. Listeners, write us in and tell us where we should go next. Should we... Where are we traveling? Yeah, exactly. Should we go to 1990s Côte d'Azur, Marseille? Should we go to where, Roy? I don't know. Anywhere is fair. 2005, 2006, <laughs> Madrid. Rayo, 2005, 2006, Madrid suburbs, Hetafe is what he's referring to there. Um, but yes, absolutely. Roy, any parting shots on for our listeners on, on Deportivo La Coruña, on Spain, on Valencia, on Ham? My apologies to Girona. I thought you guys were going to be the real deal, but you got killed this week by Real Madrid and no longer top of the table. Can you also apologize to Real Madrid, who last week you said would struggle and now have just been existential for the past week? No, I'm not going to apologize. They got destroyed by Atletico Madrid. Okay, do you go on the record and say that the Spanish champions this year will not beat Real Madrid? Oh, they're not gonna. Be, it's not gonna be Real Madrid. But then they'll win the Champions League. I also don't think they'll win the Champions Ooh, League. Ooh, what a take! No trophies, as Mourinho would say, zero titoli to Real Madrid this year. Copa del Rey, maybe. Have you seen the? I mean, I've only watched their um, Champions League matches. They're not impressive. But we say that every time they win a Champions League, that they just edge it out, or they always come back last minute, or they're lucky this and that. There's got to be something in the water. The DNA. It could be, but I think there are a couple of better teams in in Europe this year. Yeah, so. uh, racing low, again, for like example. It's, it's all it's all it's all lineups and matchups, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fall for your 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 jab there on lawn, but. <laughs> Oh, man, come on. I've I've had to watch 180 minutes of Champions League without a single goal this year, not even from the opposition. I like come the on. first goal Lon scored against Arsenal. The the miss kick from Raya is so stupid. To one play a ball when you could have played an easy pass instead you want to ding a 50-yard pass that falls 10 yeah. yards short. But yeah, but let's rotate was... our goalkeepers. It's such a great idea. Yeah, and that was a mistake. So if you're doing it based on merit and performance this weekend, you should see Ramsdale start. Uh, but that's not going to happen. And um, quickly pivoting to Champions League, uh, the assist of the week, in my opinion, was the Leipzig through ball to go 1-1 against mm-hmm. Man City. Yeah. Incredible through ball. Um, but as Holland missed, I think, like seven easy chances i'm sure he scored the hat trick at the emirates on sunday so he's got to um, i mean um i thought you were going to say the best assist of the week was uh, any one of uh, gigio donnarumma's on newcastle's goals huh. 
The Jordies. The Jordies. The, what do we call it? The Sport Washing Derby? Yeah, the Sport Washing Derby. The plucky underdogs, Newcastle, as the, the English media were trying to say. Yeah, all of a sudden, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, the, we we spent, you know, $70 million on Tonali. We also spent... Uh, and Ben Longstaff scores. Yeah, and um, Dan Byrne, the six-seven <laughs> left back, he is going to go down as a Colt hero. He looks like a rugby player. Yeah, I, it blows my mind watching him play. That he's six-seven, and somehow, like all these really talented wingers, really struggle. Obviously, to get by him, he's so big that you have to actually get out of his his you know radius, or else you're not going to get by him. So. Yeah, shout out to him. I did see that he said he only has three jerseys. I forgot the third guy, but it was Petter Crouch uh-huh. and um, Per Mertzacker. Pe- Petter Crouch is uh is is German now, not Peter okay. Crouch. Peter Crouch and and uh, Mertzacker is the only jerseys he's ever asked for when he's playing, and he has them framed. So he didn't want Mbappe's jersey after Jeez. the game. Wow, that's uh that's nuts. Well, Roy. Get out the way of Dan Byrne. Get out the way of Fran from Super Depot as well, because apparently he was six foot. Listeners, we're going to continue with these. Write us in, lostinpostulation at gmail.com. Follow on all our socials, Lost in Postulation. This is part of the LIP Podcast Network. He's Roy Cycli. I'm Nicola Volpi. Talk soon. Peace.